I've confessed to you before that I've been a comic book fan and that I've got hundreds and hundreds of comic books properly bagged and boarded at my house. And uh, when I was a, a young guy, 12, 13, 14, my, my dad would often buy me comic books. And he'd come down to my, my bedroom in the basement and say, hey, I got some Spider-Man, I got some Batman for you. And I'd get all excited. And one day, my mom came into my room. She said, Zach, I got you a comic book. I said, ooh, what do you got? Is it uh, Spider-Man? Is, is, uh, is it Robin? Is it Batgirl? I'm really getting into Batgirl lately. Ah, uh, Batgirl. But uh, she said, no, it's a comic about, uh, you know, Watergate. Chuck Colson. It's called Born Again. I got it at Living Water Bookstore. I was a Christian bookstore in town. And uh, on the cover, this is now a major motion picture. Story of uh, Chuck Colson, Born Again. There's a, a little frame of Richard Nixon. There's a little political cartoon. And then there's a punch being thrown, which I will tell you does not take place in this comic book. And I said, oh, thanks a lot, Mom. And, and I put it away, and I didn't read it for a few years. But then when I did... I said to myself, wow, this is good. It's good stuff. In fact, I even went to our church library at Essexville Baptist, took out the whole big, thick book, and read his autobiography because it was an amazing story. You see, in 1973, this guy, Chuck Colson, became a Christian. And my whole life, I wasn't even born quite yet in 1973. My whole life, I've heard that name, and I've thought, preacher, teacher, missionary, good guy. Not what people thought in 1973. That fallout after Watergate. This guy was, he was Nixon's hatchet man. That was his nickname. And, and when he said he had found Jesus, everyone was dubious. Everyone was very, very skeptical that he possibly could have. Uh, the Los Angeles Times headline said, Tough Guy Colson has turned religious. And the whole article implied perhaps this is a ploy to keep him from being prosecuted for these things that he has done. The New York Times said Colson has found religion. Again, in quotes, his conversion was met with nothing but jeers and skepticism. And that Time Magazine in December 73 wrote this, of all the Watergate cast, few have a reputation for being tougher, wilier, nastier, more tenaciously loyal to Nixon than one-time presidential advisor Charles W. Colson. He was as deep into Watergate as you could get, and he eventually pled guilty to obstruction of justice and went to prison. And many people expected, okay, now this Jesus stuff will fade away, but it never did. In fact, he began to minister in prison. When he got out of prison, he, he continued to minister to the prisoners. He started several ministries, and when he died, those ministries did not die with him. They continue on to this very day. And he was very active in working for prison reform and, and toward uh, the, the uh, dignity of all people and also in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I count him as a hero of mine. But at the time, it was almost as if this was a punchline. Chuck Colson finds Jesus. Now magnify that, multiply that by a hundred, and you have the skepticism with which the world, the Christian world especially, sees Paul's conversion. Paul, Saul, same guy. I should, quick excursus, Saul does not change his name to Paul when he becomes a Christian. He had both names his whole life. 
but the book of Acts does seem to kind of refer to him mostly as Saul in reference to his pre-conversion escapades and as Paul afterwards as kind of a rhetorical device, but not perfectly in that way. So I'll call him Saul, I'll call him Paul, same individual, and this guy was bad news. And yet he comes to Jesus. And you can hear the Jerusalem Times saying, are you kidding me? This guy finds Jesus? He he, he was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians or at least to drag them back to Jerusalem with hopes that they'd be killed. And now he follows Jesus. What's more, as we read the book of Acts, we see that he is the means by which God is unleashing the next phase of this plan that Jesus himself laid out in Acts chapter 1. And it's kind of going out further and further. We've been following it for some time now. At the core of it, in Jerusalem, the apostles ministering. Then we have these Hellenists, Philip and Stephen. They're not part of that core original group, but they are still upstanding good guys. They're going out into Samaria. They're sending the gospel off into Africa. And now we see that God is pointing at one individual. And he's way outside the inner circle. In fact, he is outside of the church itself. And yet Paul says, this will be my apostle to the Gentiles. It will be by him that the gospel will go from Jerusalem up to Damascus and Syria, all around the Mediterranean world, and eventually to Rome itself. And we see that at the beginning of the book of Acts, that first phase begins with an appearance of the resurrected Christ, and then the disciples waiting in prayer. Then we see this second phase beginning with an appearance of the resurrection Christ and disciples, new and old alike, waiting in prayer. And yet Paul's original intent was anything but carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, in Damascus, there were a number of synagogues. Josephus tells us all about it. There were tens of thousands of Jews who worshipped in those synagogues. And apparently Paul had heard a report that this Jesus movement was gaining adherence. It was planting. It was getting rooted deep in the city of Damascus, and it was growing. And he said to himself, well, I've been persecuting Christians here, and I've sent them all scattering. I'm going to hunt them down wherever they go. I am going to nip this thing in the bud. And we know what his motivation was. He was breathing threats and murder. I think that's a very interesting wording. Breathing threats. As if every breath he took was, was a threat to the church. It was, was a murderous malice, hostility. It was driving him. Saul talks in Philippians 3 about his zeal. And in Galatians 1, he tells us that zeal that drove him back then, it wasn't for God, it was for the traditions of his fathers. His zeal against the church led him to persecute the saints. And he says, I was trying to destroy it. His goal was he'd go to Damascus, and when he came back, there would be no church there. He'd leave nothing behind. He was doing it, he thought, for God. People can convince themselves that God wants them to do or say or teach just about anything. Zeal, religious zeal, does not guarantee righteousness, and it's no excuse for truth. In fact, it will often lead people into great compromise. I've sometimes heard people say, I listen to this teacher, or I I read these books, and I really, they speak to me, and I say, but that's not biblical. What that person is teaching is not biblical. And they say, ah, but they, they just, they're so zealous. They're so excited jumping around up there on the stage. 
There can't be nothing to it. Zeal is no excuse for truth. Look what it drives Paul to do. He is, in fact, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and yet he so wants to be able to go and persecute the church that he goes hat in hand to the chief priests, the Sadducees. And he says, I need letters from you that will give me the authority to go and bring people back here to be tried by Jewish law. Now, ultimately, he thinks his zeal is for God, but where does that authority come from? to extradite people back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under the authority of Rome. Damascus is under the authority of Rome. That means the chief priests got that authority from Caesar. Ultimately, this zeal leads him to shake hands with the one thing no Jew ever wanted to be associated with, which was the Roman Empire. Caesar, who claimed to be Lord God. Curias Kaiser, they would say. Caesar is Lord. And so he's as almost an agent of Rome, via the chief priests, going off to persecute those who will never say that Caesar is Lord, who will be killed in the Colosseum, who will be dipped in lamp oil and burned as streetlights in the streets of Rome, rather than say Caesar is Lord. Rather, they defiantly say, no, Curios Christos, Christ is Lord. These are those who are, are called here followers of the way. That's what the Christians were called before they were called Christians in Antioch. Christians is probably a derogative term given to them by others. The way seems to be what they wanted to be called. They said, we're, we're, the, we're the way. We're the followers of the way. The, the word in Greek means the way or a road or a highway or even a journey. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they say, yeah, that, that way, that road, that's the one we're on. That's the one we're walking. There's one way. One way, not a whole lot of different ways, paths up the mountain and God's at the top. There's one way to God, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. It's fascinating to me to think of this stuff from the point of view of a sovereign God. He allows Saul to continue his persecution in Jerusalem for a time so that the church will be scattered out throughout the, the land of Judea into Samaria, out toward the ends of the earth. He, he gets things going, but then as soon as Saul says, all right, I'm now going to go from place to place and persecute, God says, ah, no, you're not. I got other plans for you. And he stops him dead in his tracks. Why? If he hadn't intervened, would Saul have succeeded in stomping out the church? No, even while he's like packing his bags and getting his stuff together to go up north, he's going to go a hundred miles, more than a hundred miles north, and he's really going to, he's going to make an impact and stop the church. While he's getting ready, Philip's over here baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, and the gospel is going more than a thousand miles south down into Ethiopia. You cannot put this thing back in the bottle. You can't unring this bell. The gospel is going out. And still, God frustrates his efforts, redirects him. Reminds me a bit of the Tower of Babel. They said, let's make a tower that goes all the way up to heaven. That way we can become great and make a great name for ourselves. Would they have gotten to heaven if God hadn't stopped them? I don't think so. They'd have gotten to a certain point and said, we can't go any higher. Or somebody would have said, let's keep trying. And the thing would have tipped over and God could have just gone, ah! but he didn't. He frustrated their efforts, and he made them spread over the earth, a similar situation, and he worked out his purpose. God loves to take what we intended for rebellion, disobedience, for evil, and use it for good. 
And this trip, which Saul intended for evil, even though he thought and told himself it was good, he is going to use it to not only change Saul's life and change his, his character and his heart, but he's going to change the trajectory of the church for millennia. So as they are on their way to Damascus, you've always heard that Saul was knocked off his horse. You'll notice his horse, whose name was Lightning. Um, see, because of the bright light, I just thought of that. His horse isn't in the Bible. So we don't know. He was probably on foot. As he's walking, they're nearing Damascus, and there is a blindingly bright light. And for some reason, maybe it's because we're getting close to Christmas. I was reading this this week, and I kept thinking about that scene in Christmas Vacation when they finally get those thousands and thousands of, of Christmas lights turned on, and everyone in the neighborhood is like, oh, and people are falling over. Only that was at night. This is even brighter. This story is told three times in the book of Acts. And the other two times mention the detail that this is like noon. This is midday. And the light is so bright that it outshines the sun. It's, it's so bright that the sun pales in comparison. This is the, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, the glory of his presence, which is a bright light, a consuming fire. And he knows who he's dealing with when he hears these words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you? Lord. And it's been said that these three accounts of Paul's conversion can be uh, seen as contradictory. They're, they're favorites of people who like to pick the Bible apart and show why it's not true. That some of them say that his companions saw but didn't hear. Some say they heard but didn't see. But when we harmonize them, it's, it's very clear what happens. His companions hear a sound but don't understand what the voice is saying. They see the light, but they don't see the light. Because they don't see Jesus in it, which Paul does. Somehow, even though he's blinded by the light, he still sees the risen Christ. Verse 27 of this very chapter, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And he reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 9, 15, Galatians 1, and on and on. But that voice... It begins with these words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? First off, we're, we're immediately thrown back into the Old Testament. Remember in the book of Genesis, God's saying, Abraham, Abraham, repeating his name twice. God speaks in uh, Genesis 46 to Israel in visions of the night and says, Jacob, Jacob. In Exodus 3, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called him out of the burning bush, Moses. Moses. And now he says, Saul, Saul. Why twice? Probably Hebrew parallelism. Maybe more like he's really got to get this person's attention. God ever have to do that with you? Zach. Zach! It's like Calvin upstairs trying to listen to his music. It's on 10. And he's going, Alexa, Alexa, Alexa! He's, he's going to get this guy's attention one way or the other. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Note he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers, my friends, my family, even my body? But me, he that closely associates himself with his church. That for the church to be persecuted is for him to be persecuted. The Venerable Bede says this. He does not say, why are you persecuting my members? But why are you persecuting me? Because he has been suffering from the wicked ones 
in his body, which is the church, that Christ is suffering with the church. That when you hurt, he hurts. That when we're, when we're struggling, he feels it. That is comforting. Who are you? He asks. I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And then he's given instructions. Again, very reminiscent of the Old Testament commissionings. Rise, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Rise and go. Paul now knows, if Jesus is talking to me, if I see him, and I see him in a bright light, he must be alive. He must be glorified. He must be who he said he was. Uh Uh-oh. And although, in many ways, Saul's conversion is miraculous and completely unusual and unique, in many ways, it is also the same as all of ours. There are elements here that are present in every conversion. And every time someone comes to faith, they sort of relive this same experience to a degree. I think of C.S. Lewis saying, I just gave in and admitted that God was God. I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, reaching the end of himself and finding Jesus. It's not enough. This isn't enough. This life's not enough. This, my success isn't enough and finding Jesus. That's what happens with Saul. Let me highlight a few ways in which this conversion is like every conversion, including yours, if you are a follower of Christ. First of all, it is a result of divine intervention. Jesus initiates this encounter. Not not Saul, not anyone else. Jesus is the one who calls him to the meeting. He goes to him. Saul, it's been said he was, he was walking along and ever since he sat there and approved of Stephen's uh, murder and held the coats, it had been pulling on his heart and he'd been struggling with it and, and, and he'd been, he couldn't sleep and he was all worked up. But that's not in the Scriptures. In fact, it seems, the, the Scriptures seem to give, paint the opposite picture. right? And, and when, when God says to him, Saul, Saul, he says, it is not good for you to kick against the goads. Right? You know how you say that to people? Stop kicking against the goads? What does that mean? Well, a goad is a thing, an ox goad, that you'd use to direct the ox as it was pulling you along in the plow. God says, I've been, I've been here trying to, to poke at your heart, and, and you've just been kicking against. Well, I'm going to get your attention now. You've, been, you've not just been going your own way, but kicking back at me. He, he's been simultaneously running from God and fighting against God. That's what that means, that he was kicking against the goads. The reason Saul became a follower of the way is because of direct intervention by Jesus Christ, not anything that was in him, not any feeling, not any decision, not any commitment. God knocked him down on his gluteus maximus, to use a Roman term. God grabbed his attention, opened his eyes, changed his heart, And said, you're mine now. I've bought you with a price. See also Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob, and Moses, Moses. All of these people were were grabbed by God. Leave Ur. You're you're, You're mine. I'm your God. I'm the God of your fathers and you are going to follow me. He says to Jacob. He says to Moses. Yes, he uses his free will. 
Why is his will free? Because God has unbound him from the sin that had kept him completely bound and blinded and is now showing him how blind he's been by physically and literally blinding him, taking his sight. And this is the only way it could go is for Jesus to initiate this. Paul has no merit in himself. He thinks he does. He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was building this beautiful pile of jewels, but in light of what Christ has done for me, and, and when I look at Christ's righteousness imputed into me, I look at that pile of jewels and I see it was just a pile of garbage. That's a pile of refuse. Those are nice ways to translate that word. I saw it was a big pile of refuse. Rubbish, I think the King James says. Scubala, yeah, over here, you remember the Greek. Gold star for Maggie Joy. Saul did not want to become one of these Christ followers whom he despised. But as he writes in Philippians 3, he was grasped by Jesus Christ. Grasped. Well, he was running away, kicking back against the goads. You ever have a gerbil or something? And it tries to run away and you go, whoop. God grabbed him. He grasped him. He gave him new life that he was born again. He granted him repentance and faith. This is, by the way, the origin of our phrase, I saw the light. Only when we say that, we usually mean, I came to an understanding. It came from within me. This is not something within Paul. It comes from without. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the same God who spoke into total pitch black nothingness. Let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. Says into our dark hearts, let there be light. Let it shine with the glory of God in the face of Christ, and there is light in our hearts. There was no invitation here, notice. Giving an invitation is a good thing, but Jesus didn't do it here. He didn't say, Saul, are you willing to be knocked down, struck blind? Will you remain blind for three days and then receive your sight miraculously? No, he just does it. He's sovereign, and he is the one intervening here. He didn't wait and see what kind of Christian Saul would be if he even stuck with it and then say, I've got a job for you. He, he, not only had he chosen him as elect to be saved from before the foundation of the earth, he'd already commissioned him and set him apart as his vessel to do a particular job, to go and preach to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He knew what he would do for the glory of God and the sake of his name. He knew before he was born again. In fact, he commissioned him before he was even born. Galatians 1.15, he says, God set me apart before I was born. Divine intervention. Secondly, if you are saved, if anyone is to be saved, it will be a surrender to the will of God. There must be surrender. Many times people will say, I can, I can make this sound more appealing if I say, don't you want God to make you happy or... Or, or show you the wonderful plan he has for your life? And someone says, yeah, that sounds good. And I say, ah, that guy got saved. Not without a surrender. Not without repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I raise my white flag and say, hey, I'm done fighting against you. I'm done running from you. I'm done kicking the goads. You win. 
And I throw myself at the foot of the cross and wrap myself in your love that will not let me go. Sometimes that takes a long time. It was fast with Paul. Oh, and it was followed by a fast, which shows us that it was repentance. It wasn't just a moment. No food or water for three days. This sort of extreme fasting was reserved for repenting and seeking God's face. And much like how when Zechariah was struck uh, deaf and mute, he had this time to meditate on God and who he was and what he'd done, so Saul has this time to do the same thing. To think of the cost. Because this is, this is a costly thing. This is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you want in? Yeah? Okay, we're all set. It sure isn't one of those fortune cookie pithy platitude things that comes from uh, these spiritual sort of quasi-Christian books and, and uh, these sort of proverbs and, and, and little truisms. It wasn't super white gleaming teeth from a smile on a book cover that blinded Saul. It was the power and might of Jesus Christ. You can fill a stadium with the pithy stuff that doesn't say anything about the cost or demand surrender. You can get a billion followers on Twitter, but you can't change the world. In fact, one heart can't be changed by a, a false prosperity gospel. Only by the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's not just accepting the gift of a Savior, but here we see him submitting to Jesus as Lord as well. And this is a very personal thing. It's a, in fact, as, as Baptists, we emphasize this. Your relationship with God is yours. It's not via your parents or via the church. It's yours. You stand before Him. And it's personal, but it's not individualistic. Thirdly, He's saved into a body. He's saved into the church. From the very beginning, Jesus is saying, you're persecuting them, so you're persecuting me. And when Paul is saved, he, he's heard these words. This is the first thing Jesus tells him. And when he's unable to see, the first words he hears from a Christian are the words, Brother Saul. From one of these guys, he wanted to drag back to Jerusalem and throw in prison. Brother Saul. He doesn't immediately go out into Arabia and get his gospel from, from God in solitude. That will happen, but no. First, he's baptized by Ananias and spends several days in Damascus and speaks with the brethren there. And then Barnabas, too, will come back into the story next time and minister to Paul. And he's immediately commissioned to be a witness because if you're saved, you're saved to be a witness and you're saved into a body, into a church, not into your own little bubble. To say, oh yes, uh, Jesus and I have something very personal and I don't let anyone else know about it and, I, and no one else is part of it. This is the man who will write about how we are one body and each of us is a member of the body. He's got Ananias, he'll have Barnabas, and then he'll have many companions. Luke being one of them, Luke who wrote this. But first it's Ananias, so let's, let's go back and look at that. So, so Ananias is praying and and. The Lord says to him in the vision, Ananias. Just says it once. Apparently, he didn't really need to work to get his attention. He says, here I am. Again, immediately pushing our minds back into the Old Testament. All of those encounters. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Remember Samuel. That voice, Samuel, Samuel, here I am, Lord. That seems to be what God wants from us when he calls to us. Here I am, willing, 
Send me. Ananias responds very much in this way until he hears the job. And then there's this moment of doubt. Yeah, there's this guy. You might have heard of him. He's sort of a killer. He wants to destroy the church. And I want you to go and find him and pray for him. He's blind now, so he can't hurt you. But you're going to give him his sight back. So that's interesting. And Ananias sort of says, I don't know if you know about this guy, God, but I've heard some rumors, and I don't know if this is such a good idea. And he says, no, listen, you're, you are to go. I have plans. He is my ordained vessel, instrument, to be a witness. He is, I, I've got plans for him. So you're going to go to that house on Straight Street that belongs to Judas, by the way, Straight Street is still there today in Damascus, one of the oldest continually occupied streets in the world. It's full of markets and bazaars. It's called Straight Street because it's long and straight as opposed to all the crooked, winding streets throughout the rest of the city. That'll preach too, right? He's been on this winding path, and now he's, he's been after the way, which also means the road, and now he's on the road, the straight and narrow road, and now we won't, we won't follow that any further. He says, you're going to go, for behold, and whenever he says that, whenever God says, for behold, something wild's coming. For behold, a virgin will be with, wait, what? For behold, this guy Saul, the persecutor, will be my follower, will be my servant, will be my apostle. Like Saul, Ananias is from Tarsus, but that is the end of the similarities, it seems. Now, they're both Hellenistic Jews, it seems, but very different sects at this point. Ananias, who is 100% on board until he finds out who he's supposed to reach, comes around immediately when God says, well, he's praying now and I've already given him a vision that a guy named Ananias is going to show up and lay hands on him and heal him. You don't want to embarrass me, do you? It's difficult to show love to people that you are afraid of, but as Christians, we don't have a choice. We're called to love even our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And Ananias is about to be tested big time, and he passes this test. And I want you to notice something here, by the way. God says, you're going to go and do that, and I told him that you were going to go and do that. He tells both people. There's a double informing going on. I've occasionally had people say, you know, Zach, God told me that you were going to do X or Y. To which I say, well, I'll get back to you when God also tells me. He tells them both. He, he informs them both. He's dubious and scared, Ananias, but he goes anyway. After all, his name, Ananias, that's a, a Hellenized form of the Hebrew name from the Old Testament, Hananiah, which means Yahweh has shown grace. And he's shown grace to Ananias, and he's shown grace to Saul. And he goes there. Brother Saul, can you imagine how hard your heart would be beating? He does what God has asked him to do. He's a chosen instrument after all. He entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The fast has ended. The blindness has ended. And now he can see, and now he is strengthened. 
And now he is part of the church. He's laying hands on a man knowing he wanted to drag me and my family and all my friends away and throw us in a cell. And now I'm praying for him and blessing him and healing him. Undoubtedly, he knows about how Stephen said, don't hold this sin against them while he was being stoned. This is why. Because one of these men, at least one, who had been throwing stones and killing Stephen is now serving Christ. It's important for us to have each other and put aside old grudges and put aside stupid secondary issues that can divide us and make us fight and and divide up into different groups and schisms and parties. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, remember. Some say, I follow this way, I follow this way, I follow this guy. No, we all together are called to follow Jesus. After the news broke that Chuck Colson had accepted Christ, There was nothing but cynicism and disbelief from almost everyone, especially his political enemies, who had seen the worst of what he had to offer, who had heard the rumors like Ananias had heard about Saul. Most of them said, this isn't going to last, this is going to fall away, except one man, very unlikely friend for Chuck Colson. His name was Harold Hughes. He was a senator. Before that, he'd been the governor of Iowa. And he was on the opposite side of the spectrum. He was very liberal. Colson was very conservative. They'd been at odds over all sorts of things, the Vietnam War and other things over the years. In fact, Colson said this guy was very high on an enemies list that Nixon kept. And so I kind of thought of him often as someone who I should be tearing down. And yet, when they got together and Colson shared his testimony, because he knew Hughes was a Christian, Hughes said, that's all I need to know, Chuck. You have accepted Jesus and he has forgiven you. I do the same. I love you now as my brother in Christ. I will stand with you, defend you anywhere, and trust you with anything I have. Colson writes in Born Again, I was overwhelmed, so astonished, in fact, that I could only utter a feeble thanks. In all my life, no one had ever been so warm and loving to me outside of my family And now it was coming from a man who had loathed me for years. Christ draws us together. We are born again into a body. So there are many ways in which this is a typical conversion, but there are some in which it is very much atypical. First of all, no one preaches. No one preaches to him. No one brings him the gospel. Jesus does the heavy lifting himself. And no one even hands him a New Testament. There's no Gideons involved or anything. Just suddenly there's Jesus and he tells him, follow me. Now, this does not mean that we can just wait and Jesus will do this today. In fact, as he's reflecting on these things in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul writes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In other words, this is the last time it's going to happen this way. And throughout the rest of Paul's writings, he assumes if people will come to faith, there will have to be those with the beautiful feet who are sent to proclaim the gospel. There will have to be evangelism. 
And even though there's no human evangelist here, I think we see a lesson for us as we strive to bring the gospel to the people around us. First and foremost, the lesson is don't give up. I sometimes will hear people say, well, you know, I tried to share my faith with this person, but it didn't really take, it didn't really work. In fact, I talked to them three or four times, and I didn't see any progress. So probably they're just not supposed to be saved, and I give up. I tried it. I didn't get anywhere. You won't get anywhere with the lost. That's not your job. That's the Holy Spirit's job to cause the scales to fall away. Yours and mine is to faithfully proclaim the gospel, to faithfully say Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Jesus died for your sins and mine. Remember, Jesus said he's my chosen vessel or it could be translated, my chosen instrument. John Calvin writes this, The word instrument shows that men can do nothing, save inasmuch as God uses their efforts to his pleasure. For if we be instruments, he alone is the author. The force and power to do is in his power alone. All we can do is be, and I know it's not meaning a musical instrument here, but I think about my saxophone, right? I'm playing it. I don't have one of those player saxophones that plays itself like a player piano. That'd be kind of cool, but I don't. I've, I've got to blow through it. I've got to hit all the right keys. I've got to have the right embouchure. I've got all that stuff's got to be in place. But it's my power making the music. Ananias says, here I am. All right, I'll go. And it's by God's power that this instrument, this vessel is used. And when you bring the gospel, when you say, here I am, send me, I'll do this. You often don't see the progress. I heard a guy give his testimony to me a couple weeks ago, and he had been uh, evangelized by his neighbor for more than 10 years. And this guy was, I mean, this guy was in a dark stuff. So he had he's all, all dressed in black. You see those teenagers ever? Black fingernails. You know, you, you probably see the middle one most frequently. Hey, just, just very hostile. And whenever his neighbor would come and share the gospel with him, He'd just kind of make light of it and mock it, maybe blaspheme the name of Jesus. He, he's, I didn't want anything to do with that. Found out later that his, this neighbor had been praying for him every day. Every day for 10 years, starting when they were like seven or eight. And didn't give up. Didn't say, oh, well, that guy, that's not the kind of guy who gets saved. But read the scriptures and said, wow, God saves. He saves sinners. That's what he does. Hey, look, there's Alex sitting in that pew. Saved because somebody, day after day, every time he had a chance, brought the gospel to him. Prayed for his salvation. Trusted that God was capable that at some point he'd come to the end of himself. And hey, maybe he'd become the most reluctant convert in Lansing. Who cares? He's come to faith. He's come to, he's come to the end of himself and the beginning of Jesus Christ. And the, the blinders and the scales fell away. And he saw the light, received the Holy Spirit, was baptized. Maybe you won't see the progress until the very end. Maybe you won't see it at all. Maybe you're planting the seeds. Maybe you're watering someone else's seeds. And years down the road, someone else will see the fruit born. Continue to proclaim the gospel anyway. God glories in winning the quote-unquote unwinnable. Even taking a man who declared that his life should be all about tearing down the church and making him into a man who built it up more than any other. 
We see these testimonies looking back through the church again and again and again. John Newton, who wrote that famous song, Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. You know what it says on his tombstone? John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. He'd been a slave trader. He'd been the most despicable of people, and yet Jesus came, grabbed him, and said, you're going to be mine. I have bought you with a price, and I have a job for you to do. And he helped to bring an end to the slave trade. St. Augustine in the 4th century, similar experience. You read in his confessions that, that he says to God, you did convert me to yourself as I was weeping in the bitter agony of my heart. Suddenly I heard a voice repeating over and over again, take and read, take and read. At once my countenance changed, and once it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of my doubt were dispelled. And when he heard take and read, the words that came into his mind were those that he'd heard his mother read from Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And when he was debating with those of his time, called the Pelagians, who said, no, we can just follow God by our own will. We don't need to be born again and have this conversion, have a miracle, have the, the scales removed from our eyes. This is what Augustine said. Tell me, I beseech you, what good Paul, well yet Saul, willed, and not rather great evils. When breathing out slaughter he went, in horrible darkness of mind and madness to lay waste the Christians. For which merits of a good will did God convert him by a marvelous and sudden calling from those evils to good things? No, there was no merit in his heart. God didn't look down and go, ooh, there's a good one. I'll add him to my collection. He said, oh, this guy's despicable. Knocked him down and showed him, I have saved you from death to life. The same thing is true of Luther. He said as he read Romans 1.17 about the just being justified, he's, I, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. In chapter 10 here, next page in my Bible, we're going to see a similar miracle of the conversion of Lydia when God opens her heart to understand and accept what Paul is preaching. This is a miracle every time it happens. If you are a Christian, there was a miracle that took place no less than there was on that Damascus road for Saul. Maybe it was quieter. Maybe your companions didn't see a light and hear a loud sound. All the same, it was a miracle. And when you look around and you see people who you think, oh, they're not winnable, they're not savable, they are. It's a pure blasphemy to think otherwise. And maybe, maybe you've been coming to church waiting to feel like you're good enough to present yourself to God and say, okay, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm finally, I've, I've gotten over the hump and I, I don't do as many bad things and I've kind of got myself under control and I've, I've got some good habits to step. Forget that noise. Come as you are. Remember that old hymn, Just As I Am, Without One Plea? Come now to Jesus Christ. Come, come while you're in the thick of your sin and see all the more clearly the miracle that happens when he takes sinners, picks them up, 
removes the scales from our eyes and makes us his saints. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of the conversion of Saul. We are so, so honored to be part of this work of your spirit where you convict us of sin, where you show us the end of ourselves and how we can never be satisfied in, in all the things the world has to offer. Lord, when you show us at the end of our, our own mortality and then reveal to us your real plans for who we are, to be your children, to be your servants, to be your beloved, your heirs. Lord, we're so thankful that we can look at Paul's story, and if we're saved, we can see our story. And I pray, Lord, if anyone here has not put their faith in you, that they would, they would walk that Damascus road even now, trust in you, confess their sin. Lord, we all confess our sin together, knowing that you are faithful and just to, con- to, to cleanse us and forgive us, remove all spot and, and soil of, of unrighteousness. And Lord, if there is anyone in our lives who your spirit has been nudging us, like he nudged Philip, go and talk to him. And we've been thinking, oh no, that man, that woman, that child, just too far out there. Not, not Christian material. Lord, remind us, even if you need to knock us down like you knocked Saul down, remind us that no one is beyond the reach of your strong arm to save. And that, Lord, you have made us the instruments of your salvation, that we can go and proclaim the gospel and see people born again. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.